It's time to ignite your soul and unlock your full potential. Join us on Beneath the Helmet, the podcast exploring firefighters' health and wellness. Hosted by retired fire chief Arjuna George, our podcast is the perfect place to start your journey towards becoming the best version of yourself. So come on, let's join the conversation and find out what sets your soul on fire. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is episode number 22 of Beneath the Helmet. Uh, I just want to start off with thanking everyone for being part of this journey. Uh, 22 episodes with some amazing individuals and thought leaders across North America and the world. Uh, today is going to be another powerhouse knowledge-packed episode for you to binge on. Today, I'm joined with a registered psychologist, advocate for well-being of first responders, professor at UBC, co-founder of Blueprint NGO, and the co-developer of the First Responder Resiliency Program here in BC. Today, I'm lucky enough to share my conversation with Dr. Duncan Shields. Today, October 10th, as this podcast is being released, is World Mental Health Day. And as we all know, mental health is an everyday activity. But in honor of this day, I am excited to share our conversation with Dr. Duncan Shields. We explore several key areas for first responder well-being and health and how we can co-create high-performing organizations and teams. We explore the need to pay closer attention to the post-recovery of those experiencing mental health and trauma challenges, along with some strategies to be optimal, high-performing firefighters and humans. Dr. Shields is a well-known BC advocate for first responder well-being and has worked with men strengthening their role of fathers and father figures in children's lives. This is an episode that really resonated with me as Dr. Duncan Shields covers several areas that I've grown to be very passionate about over the last few years. So please enjoy this knowledge-filled episode with Dr. Shields in episode 22 of Beneath the Helmet. Until next time, stay well. All right, we got Dr. Duncan Shields with us today. Welcome to the show, Duncan. Thanks very much. Great to be uh, on the show, Regina. Thank you. Thank you. So tell our listeners a bit of who Dr. Shields is and kind of where you came from and what brought you to what you're doing today. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a meandering path as, uh, as they often are. So I'm a registered psychologist in the province of British Columbia. And I've got an appointment, uh, I imagine, professorship with the, with the faculty of medicine at, at the University of British Columbia. And uh, that's really where uh, I spend most of my time. Uh, working with uh, first responder organizations on on trying to understand uh, organizational and operational stress and and really how to keep people functioning at their very best and uh, and staying well. So uh, that that interest goes back a very very long way for me. My mother was a, a nurse who uh, served on ambulances in the 1950s Toronto, and so um, so I know PTSD from the family perspective as well. I, I know what those family conversations at the dinner table entail, and uh, and I had a brief time in uniform as, as well as an infantry uh, reservist. Yeah. I didn't do anything of any consequence at that point uh, in in uniform, but it really did give me a, an appreciation for service and sacrifice uh, in uniform. So, as soon as you became a psychologist, was first responders kind of your natural draw, or did that evolve over time? It really evolved over over time. It's kind of the natural draw was was more military. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, that was that was where I, I felt like I had an inside, uh, uh, certainly knowledge of the culture and and uh, and and some of the pressures within. And so I was really working with military veterans, adjusting to coming home after deployment or after service, 
in, uh, in transitioning out of military careers into civilian roles. Um, that was really uh, where things started for me. And uh, it was a natural fit. And it was really uh, invitations because, you know, what do you do after a military, a military career? Well, sometimes first responder roles become, become kind of a natural fit. So you carry on service to the community uh, in, in some other uniform. And it was actually a, a firefighter, Tony Spies, who I'd met and, and helped um, really develop a veterans transition program in Canada. Uh, and he became a firefighter and, and really invited me uh, to come in and, and, uh, and partner with the BC Professional Firefighters Association to try and build something upstream that would keep people well. Beautiful. Well, I know the work you're doing is truly making a difference in the fire service community and the first responder community. Uh, the dedication that you have towards our well-being is outstanding. So I just want to say kudos to you for everything you're doing in the world uh, to help us survive and thrive a bit better. So thank you. Well, it's really, uh, you know, they say in consulting that good clients make you look really good. <laughs> and, uh, and and really, it's kudos to to us in some ways, because it's the, the, uh, if there's any magic, it's in the collaboration, because um, because it's really been rolling up our sleeves together and, and trying to figure out how, how we can leverage certainly what I know, but in a world that I don't know mm -hmm. and, and being uh, really coming together to, to problem solve. How do we transfer the skills out of a therapist's office? How do we transfer the, the theory out of my office, out of the expert language that it's often couched in and, and make it relevant, deployable in real time? of first responders' lives. And, and I, I can't do that on my own. I, I need help translating that. And that's, that's where, starting with uh, BC firefighters, then going on to uh, BC police officers, municipal police officers, uh, I've had some really good partners um, to help shape something that is really, you know, not built for you, but uh, um, built with you. So I, I know you're involved in several programs. You want to talk about some of those, like the Blueprint, Thing there you want to share the you know a little plug for them sure i guess the two main programs relevant here are our, our, our work doing a first responder resiliency program which is really a program that's accessible it's a four-day uh residential program that we run up at uh ubc's forestry grounds it's called loon lake what a, what an appropriate name anyways but 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 we run that program for for firefighters and a separate program for police officers at any point in their their career where you can come in and, and really take a, a step outside of the busyness of life to look at where you are and, uh, and the impact of service and life on you, uh, where there's a gap between how you want it to show up in life and, and, and the results you might be getting and, and how you might be showing up in relationships and at your work and, and really thinking about recalibrating and being able to, to carry your experiences differently and go back to your life and make a change and sort of close the distance between uh, where you want it to be and, and where you want it, what you're achieving. So those are two uh, programs that, that uh, uh, Movember has very generously funded for two years, 14 programs for police and 14 for fire. And that's, uh, and so a lot of my, uh, my time and energy is, is about thinking through, you know, how do we take four days and, and make it count, make it, uh, create a lasting change for people that's durable uh, in their lives. I think it was episode number nine on Beneath the Helmet. We had Steve Farina come on and tell us a lot about that program as well. So it's nice to hear that it's uh, got such high regards among the first responder community. 
Well, well, Steve is uh, one of the, the chief architects and, and uh, uh, one of the people who, one of the, the first person that, that Tony Spies invited, uh, introduced me to was, was yep. Steve Fersh. Yep. And, uh, and Steve just sort of uh, welcomed me in as a member of the family with open arms. And, and that's been the, the kind of uh, uh, the quality of the relationship ever since. And, and it's, you know, in, in so many of these things, it's the quality of the relationship that determines the outcome. Couldn't agree more. So coming in as a, a psychologist, was there any learning about the culture that surprised you at the fire oh, service? Absolutely. It was a bit, it was a bit humbling because at, at the time that, uh, that I, I met Steve and, and really started the, these, uh, this project and this collaboration after I've been a trauma therapist for, for probably about 22 years at the time. And so I was a good, you know, 20,000 hours in, in terms of, of creating individual therapy spaces and, and helping largely, uh, uniform population, uh, how makes sense. Psychologists are our last responders. So we come in, you know, after things have been cleaned up sometimes months, sometimes years later, as people try and, and make sense of, of their experiences and, and they kind of integrate those experiences or digest them. And so, so, you know, I'd been doing that for about 20,000 hours at the time. So, so I thought I knew quite a bit, uh, but the first thing that we did, and, and we look at blueprint, we look with this, this idea of nothing about you without you. So, so we're not going to go away and create something sort of firefighters with, without firefighters really informing. So the very first step was to sit down with, with 30 firefighters from various, from I think two years on the job to 31 years on the job and really look at, um, what are, what are the, um, what are the opportunities? What are the, um, what are the challenges? What are the impediments to self-care? What are the, the what are the, the barriers to really taking care of each other? And it was those interviews that, that uh, uh, and the, and then the same thing with, in the 25 police officers when we, when we built the, the police program. And in both of those cases, it was a, you know, truly humbling experience. I sat down with some very generous individuals who were, who were willing to share their story with me. And, and I, I was astounded by how little I knew, uh, by, by how little I knew about the day-to-day -day work and, and the sheer volume of exposure, um, to the worst of what, the worst of what happens to human beings, the worst of what. Uh, we do to each other the worst of what we do to ourselves, and and uh, uh, and so that cumulative effect it was it was really uh, an exposure to to that part of the work and the the fact that you're you know unlike military where you deploy away and you come back home for the most part this this idea that people deploy for a lifetime and then they raise they raise their kids and they and they they have recreation in the same geography at the you know the same mall parking lot and, and that bridge and that crossroads, those, those, the geography of your exposure to trauma is the same place where you're living in your off time. Uh, that, that really hit home in a very different way. Interesting. So from my perspective, uh, there's, a, it seems to be the fire service and probably other first responder agencies seem to draw in a certain type, certain character of firefighter. Or first responder, hmm. with maybe a tendency for some some previous trauma, 
Is, do you know if there's any research on that or any any thoughts on that, that they're coming in already with rocks in their backpack into the fire service that's going to add a whole lot of rocks as well? Is there any studies on that? Or Certainly, uh, it appears to be that way anecdotally. It, it appears to be, I'm not aware of any, there probably has been studies on that, mm-hmm. but certainly anecdotally, that, that that's my experience. And it's an, it's a, it's an interesting thing because it's, you know, I, I, in those initial interviews with, with firefighters came up with this concept of, well, you know, I and, and the civilian world lived within this kind of bubble of relative safety and security, uh, and we're protected from exposure from a lot of the, the, the chaos, the danger, the fragility of life, you know, the worst of what, what happens to human beings that we do to ourselves or each other that. Right. So we, that a lot of us live within that. And a few of us will put on a uniform and be, and sort of take on roles at the surface of the bubble, protecting civilian life from exposure to much of that. But then, as you say that there's, there's another group of individuals who never, they never grew up in the bubble. They never had safety and security. They grew up in chaos and unpredictability and, uh, and exposure to, to sometimes the worst of what, what people do to each other. And that, that's a really special group of individuals. You can imagine that your, how service impacts you over time is going to be very much um, influenced by where you came from. And, and, uh, and I find that the people who have grown up with, without safety and security, um, a special group of individuals because they, rather than passing along that chaos, um, they, these are people who, who are making a value statement. They're saying, I want to be part of the solution. And, and, and so we see, um, that history of trauma works both ways. We see a very, very high incidence of, of called ACE events or adverse childhood events, ACEs. We see those in, you know, people with, with significant addictions. And so that, that, that history of abuse or trauma or unpredictability or chaos, uh, can, can really take us off track for life. But we, we also see that kind of background a high incidence of that in, in high-performing athletes or Olympic athletes, but we see a high incidence of it anecdotally again in, uh, in first responder populations. And, and, and so it, it, it does, um, tend to focus people on, I want, I want to make a difference. I want to, to be part of the change. I want to be part of the solution rather than the problem. And, and so it is a kind of, it is a very common backstory. Uh, it's not universal but it's a very common backstory and motivation for people going into first responder and military roles. Yeah, I think that's beautiful in one regard of, you know, they're here to be of service. But on the flip side, I guess we got to pay extra attention to uh, as leaders, as organizations to make psychologically safe environments as much as possible because they're going into these these incidents that are going to be traumatic uh, over their career, their time in the fire service. So. I think Absolutely. building that psychologically safe environment uh, gives them, and I think all of us, the best shot uh, of surviving and, and thriving in the fire service. Absolutely. On the, on the one hand, it, it equips people to go into into those scenes because they they're uh, in some ways comfortable in chaos, right? And so they're they're prepared in that way, uh, in a different way than people who have lived in safety and security might might actually have a, a different step to take. But on the other, on the other hand, it also becomes this kind of variable where if you've got enough, uh, you know, it's one of the formulas for post-trauma reactions is 
you could certainly, you could have the one big event, they call it, in psychology call it an index event, one big traumatizing event that, that sort of switches the brain over into safety mode, where you, where you, you don't go back into safe, you don't go back into safe and secure. Instead, you stay in, in vigilance and on guard as if the world is always going to be unsafe. That's, that is the post-trauma reaction. So one big index events causes that. We know that an accumulation over, over a career can cause that. But also when she's had an early childhood experiences and then lighter life, that, that's also part of the formula for switching you over into that kind of survival mode um, to, to be scanning and vigilant and unable to sort of come down again. You're always up and ready. You're always facing the door, ready for what's coming. So I wonder if those people would be more resilient than the ones who lived in safety and security their whole life. Uh, because they jump into the fire service, so they don't get to see that that trauma, and that's maybe the first time they've ever seen experienced trauma day after day after day. Do you think there's any correlation there that maybe though that population is maybe a bit more resilient in that regard? Well, I th I, I think it depends in part on context, right? Mm -hmm. So so we all we all carry um, a certain herd wiring. We all we're we don't arrive on the scene just kind of brand new. We're all carrying. Um, the wiring from, you know, a couple hundred thousand for, for Homo sapiens, 200,000 years of, of evolutionary inheritance, and then everything that goes before that. And all of that is sort of present uh, in this kind of layering of the brain from the reptilian, this old kind of body-mediated responses of fight, flight, freeze, flop, take cover, that kind of really sort of uh, not language, not nuanced kind of response to a predator-prey environment and makes sense in a predator-prey environment. And then the kind of limbic response, the kind of emotional valence system that, that helps us move towards or move away with preferences and likes and fears and anger and all of this stuff that, that, that helps navigate. And then this much later developing uh, neocortex and prefrontal cortex where we have language and logic and nuanced problem solving and social skills. That, that kind of layering of the brain, we've got this little technology that's there that's ready at a moment's notice to take over and respond to the environment with this kind of body-mediate response. And so whether you've, if you've come from it in childhood, it's in there and it could be cued, but equally, if you come from safety and security, it's in there. And depending on the context we put you in, what's the, what are the calls? What's the volume of the calls? What, what's the nature of it? Uh, and I, and the nature, not, not just in terms of, you know, some kind of horrific call that, that, that's kind of the obvious one. We always think when we think of trauma, we think of these kind of horrific calls and certainly those are potentially traumatizing. But equally traumatizing are the ones where you, where you show up and there's, there's something in the scene that you couldn't predict and you couldn't guard against, but it just collapses the boundary between, you know, your professional self and your personal self. And suddenly, you know, the difficult scene with a toddler, but, but this time it's the toddler's wearing the pajamas of your son at home. And suddenly there's this, co this collapse between the professional and the personal and it, and it sits there. Or you look up and you see the family pictures, or you hear the family in the other room, it's like, and something makes that that stick. And it's it's not the horror; it's the it's something that makes it personal and meaningful. And now you're carrying it in a totally different way. And so we can't guard against those things. But we we tend to overemphasize kind of individual factors, and we forget that the context that we get people into is, is also very very important in terms of of the impact on us. I find this stuff so interesting. I just it... It's a passion of mine. To, uh, I, I'm nowhere even close to, uh, you know, 
consider myself well knowledgeable in this area, but it's something that I just love studying about now. I think the brain, how the brain operates under stress is just so fascinating. There's, a, there's actually a wonderful story. Uh, this is from uh, Captain Kurt West from Uniform Services in the U.S. And, and he, he likens our, our, our uh, he has this goldfish metaphor. And it's, it's a great story about, about how we think about resilience. That's he, he says, basically, the way we think about resilience is, like, if you've ever gone as a kid and you go to the store to buy a goldfish and you, you, you bring it home with a plastic bag, right? Mm. It's, uh, you know, experience what a lot of kids have. So you say, well, go, you go to the, the store and you, you choose the most resilient the, the strongest goldfish. And so whatever your criteria is, you know, maybe you look at their childhood, I don't know, but you know, you, you choose the fastest swimmers or the biggest ones or the, the ones with the, the, the nicest scales, right? Or maybe you choose the ones with the, with the shredded fins because, you know, they've, they've been chased and survived, like whatever your criteria, but you're going to choose the very best goldfish that you can. And then you bring them home with these kind of excellent, these top-notch goldfish. And you drop them one by one, because remember, you're looking for the most resilient ones. You drop them one by one in a, in a bowl of boiling water. And then it's like, and then, and then you scratch your head when they don't, when they don't survive, when they succumb to the environment, you scratch your head and you go, well, you know, maybe, maybe there was something in their childhood we didn't mm-hmm. identify. Maybe we have to clarify our selection criteria. Cause if we can get the selection criteria right, then it doesn't matter what context we get them into. No, no matter how hot the water is, they should be just fine. And it, it's a great story because, it's, of course, that's that's madness. Like that, mm-hmm. that's not. Of course, the temperature of the water matters, and and yet when we select first responders for the rule, we keep we tend to fall back into that goldfish model where we just think if we can get the selection criteria right, 100%. then it doesn't matter about context. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter about call volume. It doesn't matter about you know we can show that we can add on an, an opioid epidemic. We can o- add on. COVID pandemic, we can add on call volume, we can, we can add in shortage of services, complexity of calls, uh, tasking people with things that are outside of their, uh, you know, outside of their, their kind of wheelhouse. And, and that's going to be okay. Right. And then, of course it's not. Context is, is a critical, critical factor to consider both in terms of what affects people, but also in terms of how do you keep people well? So it's, yes. a, it's an under leveraged kind of aspect of, of, uh, of care. Hmm. That's a great story. That definitely resonates with, with me anyways. And I'm sure the listeners will resonate with that as well as, you know, the, the fire service culture. We haven't, uh, we haven't really dug too deep into that yet of, like you say, it's all about the grades, how fit they are for the, the entry test, how they do on their interview. But have we looked at the organization itself, uh, as a, as a key to keeping people safe and thriving, right? Yeah. You know, it, because, because generally I, you know, it's, it's like you look at first responder populations at, at the recruit level, um, sorry for this is, you know, this is not a normal population, right? This is actually, a, this is actually a really fit and very well population. And yet, yeah. and yet we know. And so, you, you know, the, the highest risk is not actually coming in the door. Actually, people coming in the door are functioning pretty well. I mean, they have right. an adjustment, to me, but it's actually the last five to 10 years of the career where people are most at risk uh, because the, the complexity, I mean, it's not, not just the, uh, you say, you know, the first five years you're learning the, the operational, uh, you're learning the calls, you're adjusting to the calls, mm-hmm. but then in your next five years, you know, between five and 10 years, you, you've got an added complexity, probably in, in some kind of your domestic world and relationships. And maybe yeah. there's a marriage, maybe there's kids, maybe there's other things happening. And so 
you still got the calls, you got still got the operational issues, but then you've got domestic issues as well. And then the next five years, you know, between 10 and 15, you might, you might add, you're going from promotion, you're, you're more exposed to the politics of the organization. And so you still got the operational calls, you got the domestic issues that, are, that may be adding in complexity and, you know, financial responsibility, all the things that are happening there. But now you've got organizational stress as well. And then you go from, you know, 15 to 20 years, and, and now you've got this accumulation. You still got the, the operational stress. You've got domestic stuff going on. You've got organizational stuff, probably all of that, you know, domestics impinging at, at work and work is impinging at home. And so you've got all of that. Plus you've got, you know, compassion fatigue, moral injury, cumulative effects of trauma. And so, so the load is actually increasing over a career. So, so where, you know, we tend to, you know, be most concerned about the newbie, right? And, and the people who are sort of, you, you know, more experienced are, are there thinking that, that they've got the answer. But in actual fact, they need to look around because the, the, the greatest load is being carried actually by those uh, later in career. I can 100% relate to that because in my short 24 years, I went from being a volunteer firefighter to being a fire chief, a career fire chief. And that uh, steep incline of learning and responsibility and everything, it, it took a toll on me for sure. So there's so benefits of, of promoting early and, and going through that whole fire service early, but there's also a downside to going that fast through the fire service, experiencing yeah. change after change after change, right? So That's right. There's no, no, no opportunity to sort of take a break and recalibrate and, and even be, um, so the, so the, the speed of service, the momentum of life often keeps us from, from being able to step back and reflect and, and be strategic about our own, you know, where are we, yeah. where am I, how am I doing, how are my relationships, yeah. am, am I where I want to be, are the changes that people are signaling, you know, people who knew me before I went into this work, are they signaling that there's some change are the important people in my life signaling that? that there are changes happening that I need to pay attention to. And the momentum of life often is pushes us right through that so that, so that we don't have an opportunity to, to be reflective and therefore an opportunity to be strategic. And so we're just living life reactively, just mm -hmm. taking one challenge after the next challenge after the next challenge. So the other word that comes to mind is integration. No time for integration. No time for integration, mm -hmm. and sometimes no value of no no value placed on integration, mm -hmm. right? Value placed on suppression, value placed on putting blinders on, and I only focus on going forward, mm -hmm. right? It's just like you, you know, it's it's like sharks. You gotta you gotta be swimming forward in order to breathe or something. There's mm -hmm. some fish that has mm -hmm. to swim forward. It has, needs movement to breathe, kind of thing. Yep, yep. yep. And the, and the impact of that, of course, is you know, is that then people reach, uh, something stops you whether it's an injury or retirement or, you know, the variety of things that, that stop the momentum of life. And it's like everything that you've been throwing back into the back of the truck and driving quickly, and it's, it's all back there and safely back there. And then the brakes go on and, and guess what? All of that stuff that was in the back is now sitting in the cab with you and, and, and you're dealing with it all at once. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and so that, you know, when is that going to happen? And, uh, and and how can you prepare for that and and actually create strategic moments to step outside? Like that's what our resiliency program is. Basically, it's four days to to get outside of the the hustle of your life, to to reflect on where you've come from, 
and where you want it to go and make a course correction, right? And we don't get a lot of opportunity to do that. And when you give people the opportunity to do that and some tools to, to recalibrate and re-enter their life in a different way, people can do phenomenal things with that. I agree. I agree. Yeah, we spend most of our time externally and very little time inward, right? I think that's pretty that's right. pretty critical. You, you brought up uh, moral injury like a few minutes ago, and I really truly feel that's a um, brink of a epidemic. Uh, I, I personally feel there's a lot of people suffering from moral injury across first modern world, but also in our in civilian life as well. Maybe give us our viewers because. Not everyone's familiar with what moral injury is. We've had a couple of podcasts that talk about it, but what would be mm -hmm. your perspective of moral injury and how it's impacting maybe the fire service? If we really sort of simplify it in some ways, it's, it's, uh, you know, where duty requires you to act in ways that don't align with your own values and, and sense of morality. An obvious or an easy example of that, or maybe a less obvious example of that is, is simply where, uh, you know, that you could provide care or you could, you could save a life or you could, you could do something. And, and yet the resources that you have at your disposal, the, the, the system is not allowing you to actually provide care that you'd like to, to give. And so, and so there's this kind of. You can't do what you really know you could do if you had the resources. And, and so that, that's a potentially morally injurious uh, event. I, th I think about um, firefighters in the, the heat dome last year. Like this, was, this, was, this resulted in a kind of moral injury where the system just couldn't accommodate the number of people who needed to be transported. And so there was a, uh, quite a number of firefighters in, who were left watching people uh, succumb to the heat, people dying in front of them. But that, that they, if they could get them to the hospital, that uh, there would have been a different outcome, but the system just was buckling under the pressure. And so what do you do when you see this kind of needless suffering and there's nothing that you could do? And so those kind of, th those are very real, it's very real world kind of circumstances that, that have a, that take a toll and, and you can go away from those with, with a real sense of, uh, of eroded meaning and purpose. A sense of, of hopelessness and helplessness that, uh, and cynicism that can creep in. And, and, and when the meaning and purpose of, of what you're doing starts to be eroded, then, then it starts to be a sacrifice without payoff. It seems just to be a cost rather than also being, you know, the best career in the world. The meaningfulness and purpose and that sense of fulfillment that you get from being able to make a difference when that's eroded, right? It's, it's more difficult to go, show, go to work. You know, if moral injury is considered a occupational injury or is that not the case yet? Uh, it's, it's not sort of, it's, I don't think it's in the diagnostic code as of yet, but it's certainly, uh, it's something that's the subject of a lot of research and answer. It, it is, it is a thing, right? right. It's, it's, a, it's a very real thing that we're gaining more and more understanding. It's not my area of specialty, certainly. But it's, uh, but it's something that, that I think is very, very important to, to uh, take seriously and, and look at. I agree. So what can today's leaders do a bit better to build a psychologically safe environment, to build an environment that fosters uh, firefighter well-being from hire to retire? I think that the, um, you, you know, one of the things that got to 
Uh, we're in tra transition, I think. We're in a, a time of transition because I think that there's a lot more interest uh, and willingness to look at mental health in the workplace and to, and to look at uh, what can we do to keep people safe and keep people well over their, over their career. But as of yet, we're still not, we, we still have this kind of, there's the operations and, and then there's mental health and there's these two separate things. And so, and so it's like, we turn towards mental health when it becomes an issue. Um, but then we turn back to, to operations and, and they're, and so they're not seen as being, uh, necessarily on the same path that, that actually mental health is an integral part of being able to operate efficiently, operate at a very, very high level, that mental health, mental well-being is not, not um, understood as a way of actually increasing response time. It's not seen as a way of reducing accidents on the job. It's not, not seen as a way of, of really allowing people to actually perform at their very, very best. And so it's this kind of, this, we're still using a kind of um, brokenness model and the language doesn't matter what kind of language, uh, you know, mental health professionals put on it. We, we can talk about, you know, uh, depression, moral injury, and post-traumatic stress disorder, or we can use the sort of in-between language of operational stress injury, but the language of, uh, of the front line is often, uh, not fit, broken, uh, weak. Right. And so it, it's, it gets translated into this kind of, am I fit or am I not? And so there's this kind of, um, black and white thinking about it, that the results in this, this idea that I, that I'm going to be operationally fit and able and ready, or if I have to attend to my mental health, it's because I'm not operationally fit and, and able rather than I attend to it so that I can maintain that kind of operational fitness and readiness. That makes sense. hundred percent. Well, it's just like uh, going to the gym every day, pumping iron so you can be physically ready for performance. We have to have the same mindset that we have to be mentally prepared for high performance. It's, it's actually a way better metaphor. It's, it's, it's because if we think it, we're using a rehab metaphor for mental health, it's like I'm fit and then I'm broken and then I go for services or I, or then I pay attention to my mental health and, and, and to take in a fitness metaphor, to translate that into a fitness metaphor is much more useful to say, you know, I go to the gym. I, I work on my fitness in order to, to maintain my mobility, my strength, um, all of the things that, that I need in order to live the life that I, that I want to live. And if we transfer that way of thinking, and so your fitness, you, you know, comes and goes, it's like, there are things that, that enhance it. And there are things that erode, it. you know, tell a story, you know, COVID-19 eroded my physical fitness. Cause I used to go to the gym every week and work with a trainer once a week. And, uh, and that was a great antidote, you know, to, to my work where I sit for a living, right? So, so that ability to move and then COVID came along and closed down all the gyms. Mm -hmm. And, and so my, you know, I lost a lot of my fitness and I still haven't regained it. So that there are things that come in from the environment, from contacts that, that you can erode it. But then there are things that I can do to start to regain it and to enhance it. And ultimately. Well, your physical fitness can be better at times or eroded or, right. So it's, it's this kind of moving target that's shifting and changing all the time. Ultimately, it's going to be the outcome of practice. It's going to be the outcome of daily practice, of weekly practice, of having a plan where you're actually working on it. And so 
is it say, you know, is physical fitness important for firefighting? Well, yeah, universally people would say, yeah, absolutely. Well, is, so, so do you have a fitness plan? Yeah, a lot of people have a fitness plan. Is the mental game, is mental fitness important for firefighting? We'd say, probably people would say, absolutely, that's, that's really important too. So do you have a plan? Do you have a practice that you put in place that maintains your, your capacity to, to be mentally fit, mentally right? And then there's just kind of, you can hear the crickets. There's just a lot of people are like, no. It's like, well, how can you expect that it's just going to be there? So it's Mm -hmm. it's because there are things that enhance it and there are things that erode it. And and some of those things are outside of your control. And some of those things are actually within your control. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, if you're like, like any good first responder, there's tons, any scene that you're going into, there's lots that's, that's uncontrollable. But if you really have a clear understanding of, of how to control the controllables, then you can go in with it, with sort of better prepared and, and, uh, able to negotiate or, or bring about better outcomes in many cases. It's the same thing with your mental health. There's lots of stuff we can't control, but if you understand the levers, if you really understand the things that you can control, then you, you up the chances that you're going to be able to, uh, put in a good performance and carry your experience as well. And you're actually going to be carry, able to carry each other. So as a team, you're going to be able to, to create the team ingredients that create high performance and that actually enhance all of your resilience. Such so. an important message. Such an important message right there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with all you said there. And then going back to, you know, the benefits of having a mental health uh, program in place and having that integrated into operations, I, I think is recruitment and retention. Uh, is another factor. So in the career service, uh, it's probably becoming harder and harder to get a career job because people can work uh, anywhere in the world now online. Uh, so the mm-hmm. demand has definitely gone down there. It's still a very sought after job and career, but in the volunteer sector, there's also, if you're not taking care of the mental health of your volunteers, that's fire service probably gonna be one of the first things they they drop and leave to take care of their own family, their own well-being, right? So I think it's got to be on the forefront of leaders' minds for recruitment and retention as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we, what we know from, uh, you know, from organizational uh, psychology research, you know, why do people stay in the job, right? It's, yep. it's, it's, not, the, it's not the feature. It's, it's, you know, it's the, it's the culture. Yes. Culture keeps people. Yep. And, yep. and uh, and people often report, what are, what are the peak experiences of our life? It's very often the moments of our life that we, we got to be a part of, of some kind of really cohesive team working on something together. We're, we are wired to relationship. And, and, um, and those experiences where we have a real sense of belonging and, and shared purpose, those are actually peak experiences. Those are, those are peak human experiences that we, we all, they speak to all of us. Collectivist goals are, are far more motivating than individualistic goals. Just like if you're if you're if you're in seeking affirmation, admiration, and, and acceptance, it's far less motivating at a core level than having collectivist goals of of really belonging and having a sense of shared meaning and purpose, and really contributing to to a learning environment where the team can continuously improve and enhance its ability. There's a, a wonderful study, you know, O'Neill and, and Rothbard, did a study on East Coast uh, fire holes. 
looking at a variety of factors. And what, what did they find? They found that, that, you know, these, these crews overwhelmingly preferred, you know, um, sort of solution focused coping or problem focused, uh, coping versus emotion focused. So people wanted to solve the problem where there's a, rather than deal with the emotion, there was a, a tendency for kind of stoicism or suppression of emotional response. There's also a culture of kind of joviality. This kind of, it's, it's kind of prototypical, uh, often male environment of pranks and good nature, like, uh, of, of jokes and pranks and, and doing that kind of, kind of thing. But there was this other quality that there was, a, there was crews that also had this deep sense of companion that care, this, this, their awareness of each other, where everybody knew what was going on for somebody at home and the challenges that were there, or somebody was having a bad day and they just needed to be looked out for and carried and their load needed to be lightened. And they were looking out for each other in a different way. And so you still had all of that kind of problem-focused coping versus emotion-focused, this emotional suppression, this kind of pranks and, and good-natured humor. But there was a change in the humor because it would never, because they cared for each other. It would never cross the line to become kind of weaponized where, where all of a sudden it became just nasty. It became about excluding, about targeting people, about taking them down. And people would go, ah, oh, you know, I'm sorry, that sounded a lot. Yeah, it sounded a lot funnier in my head than what I said, and I'm really, I'm really sorry about that. I shouldn't have said that. And people got redos, you know, but they were looking out for each other. And it was this phenomenal finding that came out of this because in those crews where you had that companionate care, this real concern. So it's not the captain looking after, looking out to make sure everybody's okay. Everybody's taking responsibility to make sure everybody's okay. There's not one person's eyes on the crew. There's, you know, if it's a crew of five, there's five people's eyes on five people. And what happens? You get in those crews, you get faster response time. So what does that got to do? But the cohesive team responds faster. You get lower accidents. You get more satisfying family life. You get better church health. And so all of these kind of spin-off benefits that, that seem to be related to group cohesion. And it's not just some firefalls. We've seen this in, in, in that, you know, risk, zero risk, high liability organizations like uh, deep sea drilling platforms, where if you can, you, you go from the kind of um, macho kind of status oriented, never admit you don't know what you're doing, take risks, all of that kind of environment that, that creates these massive, massive accident rates. And when they tweak those environments to create learning environments where everybody's going to look after everybody, and um, you know, Shell Oil did, did, found that, did this kind of intervention where it was a learning environment. So people had to admit, you know, they were admitting that they didn't know, they were looking out for each other, they were kind of holding each other accountable. Listen, you know, you, you got to go home. There are people who love you and you need to go home to. You just don't do that. Like, absolutely, you do not do that here. And what they found that in these crews, they had an 85% reduction in accident rate. And the production rate climbed over the industry standard. And so, so actually these environments where, where crews can be really compassionate and looking after each other and caring for each other, that's actually the, the ingredients for not only lower accident rates and better health and better family health, that's actually part of the ingredient for optimal performance on the job. And so if we, if we really, if we're really interested in operational effectiveness, if we're interested in efficiency, then we really need to attend to 
the environment, the, the context, the culture, and the inclusiveness of our teams. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was a lot. And that was, you're saying the words that are going through my head. Because that's, that's my dream is to have organizations operate like that across Canada, North America, the world. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Thank you. You know, I, it, it's also, you know, you, I talk about it in terms of performance, but, but we also know uh, it's John Cassell's, you know, stress, stress buffering hypothesis, but it, but it keeps on coming out in different ways that people who are socially linked actually uh, recover better. Uh -huh. Or, or even in, in disaster, you know, the lessons from disaster preparation can, uh, I think of James Sampson's work after Hurricane Katrina, community cohesion and co community uh, uh, kind of resilience. And so, you know, in Katrina, they, they found, so the transportation infrastructure was devastating. And so you had these communities that were, were uh, you, you know, devastated and it was very, very difficult to get aid in afterwards. And then you had communities that had less, less of an impact and they had lots of aid. And, and so what would you think that the long-term mental health impacts on those communities would be? You'd think that that would correspond to the amount of aid that they get afterwards. But in actual fact, it was sometimes the opposite. And you had these communities that, um, that were devastated and got very, very little, little aid in. But some of those communities had better mental health outcomes long-term. Than, than some of the less impacted communities. And so it's a lot really sparked this kind of investigation about, well, well, why is this, why is this happening? And, and what researchers found, like James Sampson and others, they found was what got labeled the zip code, it's American, the zip code effect or the coastal code effect, but that there was these neighborhoods and these neighborhoods where there was cohesion and where instead of stockpiling their resources and take care, taking care of themselves as individuals, you know, hoarding the toilet paper kind of phenomenon. It's just, instead, these communities turned to each other and they shared resources. And so they discovered that you could, you could measure this by things like, you know, questions like, can we go next door to your neighbor and borrow an egg, right? So, so neighbors uh, who had that kind of cohesion and linkage and, and capacity to share resources, they took care of each other post-crisis and their incomes were better. And so that's, this, this idea that where you live and your community cohesion actually is a preventative factor and also a recovery factor post-crisis is, I think, really relevant for first responders. Because if you think about it, right, firefighters have two postal points. They have the one where they go home to, at, you, mm -hmm. you know, to their families. But the fire hall is the second family. It's a second postal code. And, and so if you have an environment because you keep going into crisis and you don't get to choose what you're going to see. You don't get to, well, I'm, I'm going to sit out on this call. That, that's not going to wash. So you, you're getting exposed to these things. But what we know is that the recovery environment is actually one of the most important things in terms of how it impacts you. And that bears out from meta-analysis studies, you know, studies across studies around who, who gets post-traumatic stress reactions and who recovers well. And, and what those studies show is it's not, you know, it's not just, you know, childhood's not the most intensive factor, but it's not the most dominant factor. And uh, the incident, the, the factors around the, the trauma itself are not the most determining factors. That the thing that, that is the most important in determining who, who recovers and who's impacted are the factors in the recovery environment. It's the post-trauma environment. And the 
the really cool thing about that is that that's actually the factor that we have the most control. Mm. We can't deal, we can't go back and deal with somebody's childhood. We can't, we, we can't choose the call that you're going to go, but the the recovery environment, that environment, that's one that you could actually, um, strategically and actively shape in order to create a restorative environment where people have the space and the time and the relationships to heal and recovery. Such an important part, because I don't think, well, I don't think many people talk about that, that part of the PTSD or the trauma journey is the post. And that is, like you say, that's a part that we have control over on how to do that. So kind of brings to mind us what can we do better in the recovery process to support our fellow firefighters? Yeah, I, I think part of that is, uh, is recognizing where stoicism works for you and where it doesn't, right? Because I, I think that the, there's a necessary suppression of emotional response, but it's just not going to serve you on the call. And you need to be able to, to, to kind of unwire you know, particularly the reverse gear emotions of, of, of fear or disgust, those things that make us recoil from a scene, from, from an environment, uh, those things we, we, we need to be able to, to suppress those in order to go forward and do the job. But if you're still, if you're still suppressing all of that emotion, uh, if you are impacted and not everybody will be impacted by a scene again, it's, it's often unpredictable what, what will stick. But if you're impacted and you're trying to continue and you're continuing to try and suppress that in the hall, or once you go out of the hall into, into, into the all, into, into everything else of your life, then, then you're, you're jamming up the, the, the kind of digestion process and integration process to be able to work through the emotion and, and actually integrate it and move on. And so, uh, recognizing that, that that sort of stoic. Um, demeanor, that stoic stance works in one place, but it's also unnecessarily restrictive. And if we go back to the hall and we're continuing to try and, and, uh, and be, uh, impermeable, unaffected by anything we see, and we're afraid to, to, to put our hand up and say, did anybody else find that really jarring? Did anybody, did anybody else get taken to their knees by that one? If we're unable to say that because we're, we're terrified that we're going to raise questions in our peers about our competence and our ability to perform. If, if we can, if we can instead create space and say, well, what's good for there is not necessarily something that should be pulled into the hole so that we can create space for, for, for people to come forward and talk things through and be seen and heard and understood so that they can, they have a recovery environment. Then, then that actually is is like it's a very important quality. So, so I I think the the inability to take the armor off after the call becomes restrictive, and it also perpetuates a myth. If you're not talking about the impact of what's going on, then you're perpetuating it. Uh, your silence perpetuates the myth for everybody else that nobody's affected. And 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 so what happens when we suppress and we just we we suppress the impact? is eventually, you know, the accumulation gets so great that, uh, you, you know, it, it, it starts to, there's a containment failure. You know, my, my, call, my colleague, uh, psychologist, uh, uh, Dr. Kevin Luke, uh, makes, it, makes the analogy, you know, between emotional suppression and the buildup. 
and, and containment lost it. It's like try drinking water, not going to the bathroom. Mm. It's like you can't go to the bathroom, but, but you know, so drink a little bit more water. And it's just, there's not a good time to go to the bathroom. So just, just drink a little bit more. Then drink a little bit more and drink a little bit more. And, and it's pretty uncomfortable. But if you ignore it, it goes away until finally you get a containment loss. And, and eventually your bladder doesn't care whether you're sitting in a restaurant or on a call or whatever. It's just going to, there's a containment failure and, and, yeah. and now it's all coming out. And, and it's like, sure. So, so be careful about how long you suppress. There needs to be a, a place to integrate, to express the right emotion at the right time. Have that seen, heard, and understood by somebody who, who gets it, uh, so that you can kind of complete that cycle and, and move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Such wise words. It, when you're speaking about that, it kind of makes me think about the, you know, in the fire service, there's the command and control time when we are as incident commanders, we're in control. We make decisions, take very little input when we're life and death decision-making time under, under a time crunch. But then there's also a time when you're back at the fire station. And you can have a much more democratic discussion about things, much more involved with people. So there's a time to turn it on and a time to turn it off, just like stoicism, right? And That's like, right. Yeah. And, it, and, and that, you know, military troops uh, who work in small, elite, small teams, and this, this wonderful saying that emerges of uh, rank has its place, mm. but rank also knows its place, mm. right? Yeah. So, that, so that there's this kind of this time for rank and command and control. But there's also this this time for recognition and so, and and to treat everybody as as uh, as the same and interchangeable, mm -hmm. right? And and also this time when when you recognize the diversity in your crew, and that some people have this they come in with different experiences. The one's a teacher, or one's a Red Seal mechanic, and, and you know one one has training in you know air conditioning or whatever it is, right? And totally. that there's this 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 profound amount of knowledge that can inform your decision making. And so that command can place other people in command for a moment based on, on the, the amount of knowledge. And so this kind of moving people around, that's actually, that's actually the characteristic of elite teams, yeah, right? So how much can we integrate that? Yeah, I'd agree. Fascinating discussion. I'd like to give you the opportunity to share one amazing golden nugget to take away for our listeners today. What's something you want to share and make sure that our listeners walk away with today? We can all take responsibility for each other. I mean, when we think about leadership, we think about the roots of the word. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old Indo-European word um, from Ledinir, which is literally the, the, um, it's the threshold of the doorway from one room to the next. And so leadership is, is really this idea of stepping out. It's stepping forward, stepping from one place into the next. And, and, uh, and so leadership, we often confuse it with, with rank or management, but in actual fact, uh, leadership is something that you can take at, at any place in an organization. And, and one way of thinking about it is, you know, like, who are you on your team? You know, are you, and what are you striving? Who are you striving to be? Are you striving to be the, the, the MVP? Like, uh, are you the all-star who's so competent that you make everybody else feel insecure? Right? Is that a contribution that you want to make to your team, or or are you actually aiming to be the kind of um, the team? What what in sports is the team captain, the person who, because of your presence, you, you become the glue that holds everybody in in place. Who who just by your presence, I'm, uh, you elevate the play of every other player on the team, and so that's that's a role. If you kind of look at what's my contribution 
when I when I participate in that conversation, am I am I elevating the play of the other players, or am I actually excluding people? And yet, as much as I, I sort of emphasize everybody, we need everybody to take responsibility. If we entrust that to to the official leadership, then you're then that's putting you in a kind of uh, helpless victim position. Don't don't put yourself there. You're equally accountable. You're you're 100 accountable for for your 50 percent of any exchange. So take take uh, responsibility for your own sphere of influence, but also at the same time we also recognize that change can't. It's not the probationer who can change the culture around the fall. Their job and their their emphasis or their focus is very often just on fitting in, on on being on earning a place at the table, on being afforded belonging within the group. And so who can actually kind of kick the kick the space in the blocks? for a different way of being. It's usually the senior people. It's usually the people who don't have anything left to prove. And so it's that place of privilege that, that people can actually start, they can model, they can talk about their own experience. They can, they can open up the conversation and allow other people to join. And, and part of that is also about creating a learning environment. The after action review is not on who did it right and who did it wrong and who's to blame and who's the finger pointing really unconstructive. It damages the safety that's required for, for a really open reflection on what went well and what didn't. And on the things that didn't, how do we, how do we support that? Who's having a bad day? And how do we identify the fact that sometimes people are off their game? That's reality. We can't be on all the time. And so how do we signal to each other that, you know what? I'm off my game today. Uh, the team may need to have like that. And, and, and to be able to recognize that and really be working so that everybody gets supported. Everybody is, is in both on the time when they're most of it, they're most on, and also they're an integral part of the team when they're also, um, you, you know, their, their resilience is low, their focus is off, uh, but they're still there, they're doing the best of, of what they can do and being supported to be an integral part of that team. Wow. What a what a treat to uh, talk to you today. It's uh, mind blowing how just listening to a person who's not in the fire service but knows so much about the fire service uh, and cares so much for their well being. It it blows me away, and I am truly humbled and grateful that you're on the show today. I've had really good teachers. So, <laughs> how can people get a hold of you, or um, is there any way that people can connect with you if they want to after the show? If people are interested in the resiliency program, then they can certainly go to the the BC Police Association, uh, third police, or they can go to the uh, BC uh, Professional Firefighters Association. And there's links on on uh, on their website yeah. in terms of how to how to uh, how to get into that program if they have or, or make inquiry if if they want to do that. And our uh, we have a website which is is being renovated um, now. Um, it's called uh, Blueprint.ngo. And, uh, and on the protect, so we have a, another part of our work, which is all on fatherhood. So really looking at where another place where men, um, are, are able to express their care, uh, and their sort of care and concern for, for family or for community. Um, and firefighting is another place where, where young men are socialized. It's still a primarily male occupation, but young men are oriented to and socialized. Uh, to understand that putting on a uniform of different kinds is, is also a viable and, and uh, a legitimate way 
of expressing care and concern for societies. So that's kind of what we're interested in. It's really delving into the unique contribution that men make um, and the, the way that we care for our families and our communities and really uh, identifying that, amplifying it, and communicating it out, out to, to, to have more men step forward to those roles. So on the protect page of uh, blueprint.ngo, you can, there are some, there's some information about the program and also uh, a downloadable, the five B's of resilience. It's a model that we developed, which is really the five B's are, you know, our blueprints or our, our, our beliefs. Uh, how do we, how do we use our breath? How do we use our body? How do we use our behavior? Then what about our bonds? Who's got our back? Those five B's are our drawers in a, in a tool pit that we can show with a variety of different tools to keep us resilient. And so there's information about that that's, that's free to download. And um, we always welcome feedback on that as to what its relevance and deployability is real time in people's lives. Wow, such important work. Congratulations. Thanks very much, Arjun. I've really, uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. I, I'm dying to ask you one more question if we have time. Fair enough. I, I, I personally am a believer that somatic work, working with the body through trauma processing, uh, works. It worked for me. Love to get your view as a psychologist on how the body, you know, like some, there's books out there about the body keeps the score and the body right. internalizes a lot of trauma. Any thoughts there? We'll keep it short. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned that. Bethel Vanderkolk's work on yes. the body, yeah, it keeps the score. You know, it's, uh, it's you know, tra trauma involves a curing up of an ancient part of the brain um, that mobilizes body-mediated responses. And so it, it's kind of all those, the fight, flight, freeze, uh, flop, which is kind of a safer freeze where we get, you know, gas pedals on and the brake pedals on at the same wow. time in the body. Or shape of freeze where we go for, you know, cool from tachycardia to bradycardia, like this kind of drop of blood pressure, drop of heartbeat. Um, these are kind of body immediate responses and very, very ancient responses to, to an animal world. And, and so when we get, when we get traumatized, what, what does that mean? Well, in some ways it's when, where something breaks our illusion of safety in the world. And all of a sudden we go from being able to navigate it with the presumption that we're, we're safe and secure most of the time. Uh, and that's this kind of assumption that most of us need to cross the road, right? We're not, we're not locked on one side, frozen there. We're, we walk as, with this presumption that nothing's going to happen to me. And when that gets shattered, those shattered assumptions of safety, we end up moving into this kind of lower brain in a very body-mediated response to the environment which we're hardwired for and which is really adaptive in a predator-prey environment, but then that keeps us in this kind of vigilant mode. And so we're, we're continually dumping out adrenaline and cortisol into the system for a very body-needed response. And so very often, if you were in a functional MRI machine and we, and we kind of triggered you, what we see is the lights start to go off up in the cognitive language centers up here and processing moves to these much more ancient areas. And so, how do you access, how do you talk yourself through trauma when the very nature of being triggered and, and having that kind of post-trauma response is kind of turned all into the, to the, uh, to the threat. Um, you've moved from challenge stress to now everything's threat stress. Everything's a threat to life. So how do you talk yourself through that? Well, very often that thinking is actually inaccessible in those moments. And so the pathway in 
to make this come back online, to make thinking more accessible and colonial strategies more, more accessible, is to actually go bottom up. It's actually to use the body to make the, to, to feed messages to that lower part of the brain that we're seeing. And so regulating your breath, slowing down your breath, changing the rate of your breath, uh, loosening the body, working through the body, those, those things become very often the entry point. They'll, my friend Lionel Crowler is a firefighter who's caught in a, uh, a tragic Winnipeg fire uh, and has dedicated so much of his life to teaching fire ground survival. And one of the, one of the acronyms that he taught me around, around that training is, is BOA. It's kind of, uh, so when you're in a crisis and yeah, what, what's, what is, this is one of the tools The BOA stands for breathe, orient, then act and don't reverse them. <laughs> so what does that mean? So what are you doing? Well, you're taking a breath, long breath out. You're starting to regulate your body. You're using your breath, the body response. You're taking it out of autopilot where it's probably high and shallow. You're starting to hyperventilate. You're becoming, uh, you're becoming less and less able to think clearly. You're slowing that down initially. You take a breath, you feed your brain some oxygen. You release the chemical bottleneck that's actually, you got too much oxygen stored in there and it, too little carbon dioxide. Now, you, now you've created a chemical bottleneck where you know, the verity is you've got lots of oxygen and you're hypoxic. You can't, you can't access the oxygen. You actually have to breathe out long in order to release that. And so you're going to breathe and then you're going to orient. And so what are you doing? You're using your senses, body senses to orient. You might be feeling your way, but this is the floor. This is the corner. This is like you're, you're using your body to orient yourself to your surroundings. That's here and now, right? It's, it's very, very grounding in this. That's the kind of practice of mindfulness right here and now. You're taking yourself out of panic, but putting yourself right in this. And then based on that, now you formulate action, right? And so even, even in that foreground survival uh, acronym, you know, if you want that to be accessible, you're going to have to drill it. But, but what are you doing? You're actually using your body. You're using body strategy to increase the chances that you're going to be able to think your way through rushing. So, so, yep. uh, body is, right. is a, yeah, body and breath, very important levers for groundedness, resilience, performance, survival, all of those. So glad you said that. Cause I'm a firm believer that there it's two, um, just like organizations and mental health should be synced. I think the mind and body should be synced as well. Uh, my personal view, um, cause I know it's helped me through life and my struggles. And I think it's a pretty powerful, uh, modality to. To include so that's right and and i think about so i the five b's you know your blueprints your your beliefs about things breath body behavior what what is it that you can do right here how do we break it down how do we make a small change how do we use the thin edge of the wedge to make a change right make a small small change don't use don't start with the thick edge use use a small small change you just get a little gap then you're gonna hammer away at the end of it but start a small change and then bonds like who's got your back and very often you know where do we feel most grounded you know, when we're seen, heard, and understood, when somebody is listening to understand versus listening to fix us or give us advice or respond in some way, with a lot of counseling and coaching is, is about hearing people really, really well. And then all of a sudden they get clarity on their own answers. It's, it's you know, when we're seen and heard very often, our physiology starts to adjust. As a relationship, we know even in cohesive teams in crisis, 
that cortisol starts to entrain. So people react together and then they start to recover together. And mother and an infant, right? Distress together, cortisol levels go up and mom starts to calm down and leads the child. Cortisol's entrained. And so even physiologically, our bodies are huge to relationship. And so we can, we can ground each other. Our physiological recovery is enabled by close relationships. Wow. <laughs> I, I hope we could do part two someday. <laughs> you may end up with enough material here to do part two. <laughs> well, Dr. Shields has been a, truly an honor. I know you're a very busy person. I know you're uh, dedicated to the fire service, and I really, really appreciate it on behalf of North American Fire Service of what you're doing to help us. So I want to acknowledge you and your team and your and your teachers who've taught you. They've done a great job. And I just want to acknowledge your time and and your knowledge today for spreading the wisdom. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Richard. And thanks for creating this platform for for getting the the knowledge and resources out where it belongs in the hands of the people on the front line who are actually doing yeah. the work. So thank you right. for that. Yeah. All right, everyone. Dr. Duncan Shields. Stay well. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Beneath the Helmet. We hope that this podcast has provided you with valuable insights into the world of firefighters' health and wellness. Remember, caring for your physical, mental, and spiritual well-being is crucial to achieving optimal performance. Join us next time on Beneath the Helmet for more inspiring conversations. Until then, stay well.